started a company called Lookily, which was like Yelp in, in Ireland. And mm-hmm. I, I thought what I should be doing was creating a really good user experience. Didn't focus at all on customer development and really got to a point where that, that website was doing really well from a consumer point of view, got lots of traffic. But when we tried to monetize it and make money, we didn't know who the customer was. We didn't know who was the persona that was going to pay for us. I, I definitely learned a lot from that experience where you to try and find that product market fit and more focus on that side of things and not just creating something beautiful. And welcome back to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Austin. I'm here with Lee Monroe, who is the Director of Design at OneSignal, really cool startup that's building the future of messaging. But he's also a bit of a maker, side project-y type guy. So he's created htmlemail.io and codeshare.io. Prior to Working as the director of design at OneSignal, he was a product and design leader at a bunch of places like Mesosphere, Mailgun, which was acquired by Rackspace, Cario, and Runnable, which was acquired by MuleSoft. He's also founded his own company in the past called Lookily, and perhaps most interestingly to me, he is from Northern Ireland, as I'm sure you will be able to tell when he starts speaking. So, Lee, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. It's great to finally have you here. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Very excited. It's a big honor. I'm a big fan of the show, so thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad that we were able to meet. We're actually here in person at the new OneSignal office in San Mateo. That's right. Yeah, it's awesome. It's good to have you here. It's a nice office in San Mateo in the middle of the Bay Area. So we've got a couple of things nearby, like Fieldwork Brewery and you know, important things like yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's. Uh, this is a really cool area. If you're ever visiting San Mateo or the Bay Area, the One Signal office is in a super cool place. They're like building all of these new futuristic tech-oriented office buildings and breweries. So. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Bay Meadows. It's right beside the Hillsdale Caltrain Station. So a few other recognizable companies like Survey Monkey and so forth. Yeah, it's yeah, a good area. You're in good company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So as I mentioned, uh, not only are you the director of design here at OneSignal, but you've taken on some really cool side projects. And that's kind of what I want to start by talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, both of us, I would say, are kind of big into side projects, but you've really taken things to another level because you've launched products that are self-sustaining and profitable, unlike myself, who is still paying for this podcast. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about that. Let's wh- give me a quick intro to some of the the side projects that you've worked on. And sure, yeah. Well, we could go way back, right? So mm-hmm. let's go back to my first website, which was a fan site for WWE. Mm-hmm. Uh, so back then, I was using GeoCities. You remember GeoCities? Were you a GeoCities? Oh, yeah, now? absolutely. Yeah, okay. You know, believe it or not, it was a little bit before my time. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, definitely, uh, stuff. I feel like I show my age whenever I mention GeoCities, <laughs> for sure. 
but yeah, first fan site, GeoCities, had a guest book, had some welcome gifts, had a web ring and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It got some traction in the end and it ended up getting a, I got a cease and desist from, at the time, the WWF. That was nice. back whenever <laughs> I was like 15. I had to take the website down, but that was, that was definitely my first, that was like my first learning experience, my first side project. It evolved into this CMS that I coded myself with classic ASP and uh, Microsoft Access database. Wow. Have you ever done something like that? No. no is, are these ringing any bells? These I, I, the the terms ring bells, but you're you're over my head at this. Point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, over the years, I've always had some sort of side project. I think there's uh, a lot of benefits to side projects. Not just you mentioned like monetary and like that's that's usually not the goal with a lot of my side projects mm-hmm. uh, and you know it looks like with your podcast if you're still <laughs> self-sustaining that's not the goal for you other you know there's there's many benefits i think like one uh from a career um, perspective it you know, it's this ability to learn and to try new things and experiment right and i've certainly used it like side projects to help me get jobs like that will be i'll go in an interview and i'll present maybe my portfolio from the last company or the company before but then i'll dive into like here's a a side project that i'm passionate about and i'll i'll show them you know things that i've worked through there which isn't always just design it's some coding or it's some sales or marketing so Mm -hmm. i think it's a it's an opportunity there to dive into these different areas that you're not maybe not doing on a day-to-day at the office But it's also a a playground, right? It's a playground and a sandbox to try different things. And whenever you're at a a company, it's hard to adopt new things because, well, there's a lot of people to go through, right? So if you wanted to, let's say, use a new tool on a website, let's say Hotjar, Mm -hmm. right? I think we're both big fans of Hotjar because it enables us to track users, see what users are doing. If you wanted to just introduce that at a company and you'd never used Hotjar before, it'd be really complicated because you need to get buy-in from a few people. You need to get, uh, including the script in the product or the website from yeah. you know, engineering that needs to go on to a JIRA task and get planned on a sprint <laughs> somewhere. So there's a, there's a lot of risk. And if you've never used it before, you feel uncomfortable presenting that proposal. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a side project where you're able to experiment with these things, I can turn that script on there like i use segment or google tag manager all sure, the time so like yeah. turning these things on and off is very easy mm-hmm. try it out there leave it for a week see mm-hmm. how it performs get the validation that you need and then you can go back to your company and say hey look I've, I've been using this on the side this is what it gives us it's awesome we should you know make a point of putting this in our product or on our website yeah so i, I definitely use it to experiment a lot like that yeah, it is. It's absolutely a sandbox, right? That resonates with me a lot. I've I've always done very similar things like on my personal site where I've had some of these weird encounters where people will like visit the site with me there to critique it or something like that. And they see all of these like 10, 15 tags pop up saying that they're, they're loading uh-huh. on the site. And it's like, what? This thing is wired to the gills. And it's that's exactly the reason why, right? I don't necessarily want to track every single person to an insane degree that comes on my site, but it's a really great way to learn how to use tools and to understand how they work in a real life environment, as opposed to just like researching it via their marketing site prior to proposing that you bring it to your company and integrate it into your product. Exactly, exactly. 
Um, so yeah, I've, I've had a lot of success there. Where okay, try something, bring it into the company, propose, and you know a lot of my side projects have definitely just been for that. But you know, like you mentioned, you know some of these side projects have have taken off as well. Mm-hmm. If we go back to my days at Mailgun, whenever I was there, I created this very basic open source email template. So Austin, have you ever had to code your own email template? <laughs> More times than I would like to admit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's, it's not a nice task to do and nobody likes to do it. I put this one HTML email on GitHub and uh, before I knew it, it was on the Hacker News front page and a lot of people were talking about it. Yeah. It was very simple, very basic. It's actually still out there in GitHub. And then I launched this HTML email.io, which was a, a pack of email templates based on the original open source one, but a bit more sophisticated, a bit more flushed out, and that looked a bit prettier. And yeah, that's uh, that's a side project now that you know I sell these templates for 50 bucks. And again, I'm still constantly running experiments on it. I, like I'll turn on Hotjar or Full Story or Heap yeah. <laughs> and just to test these tools out to see how they perform. Uh, but also it's a nice little, little side business, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of that side business, um, you were featured on Indie Hackers with HTML email. And I think it's always nice when you're able to validate an idea with somebody that's willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's it's nice to have you know one of those projects that's like a set it and forget it type yeah. project that, that's there. And I've kept it very lean. It's a static website. It's built with Jekyll and it's it's hosted on Netlify. And I've got a couple of marketing automation tools in there like Zapier and Intercom, but nothing too heavy. And yeah, keeping it very lean, like the, you know, I'm paying maybe uh, in expenses you know, 50 to 100 bucks a month, so not mm-hmm. a lot. And people find it through content marketing and organic SEO, and they, they buy these email templates, download them pull them into their, their workflow and it saves them a lot of time. So it's really just like, okay, identify what the pain point was, provided a solution. And I think, oh yeah, like one of the one of the tools I use is Gumroad, which is I should definitely call out because they provide the whole checkout flow. So it me- means I don't have to make this checkout flow mm-hmm. or create my own store. It's it's really just I set it up there and then I have a link that I link to from my website. So it's very lean, very basic, but performs pretty well. Yeah. That's one of the things that I really appreciate about this sort of maker mentality with, especially when it comes to side projects that just happen to become something that are bigger than a side project is the idea that you can basically take a bunch of disparate tools that are for the most part free, at least at first, and pull them together and create a product that generates real value for people. So yes, I'm curious, how have these these projects that you've been working on, like, benefited or impacted your career. You you shared this quote in an article that you wrote called Side Projects Are Your Playground, which was side projects are the new resume, which I think is a very interesting way of thinking about this, right? It's big, legitimate experience that you've generated for yourself. Yeah, uh, it's mine are definitely very tied together. Yeah, definitely side projects and career. Like that, that article I wrote was... Uh, it's probably like five years ago now on Medium. It was def- I think it was the first Medium article that I wrote. Not first Medium article, first one that I wrote. And uh, yeah, I, I dived in. I think I was talking about another side project, Flask.io, which was a, a simple to-do list that I built because I wanted to learn 
how to do Ajax requests with Rails. So it was just this to-do list. And then I like quote unquote productized it and put it up and I got a bunch of free users. And again, it then it turned into this area where I could just experiment with things. So, you know, it's, it's always been very tied because a lot of the time I'll do these projects to learn uh, a programming language. Like there it was like Rails and even I think I used CoffeeScript for that project because it was like, what's this CoffeeScript that people are talking about? Mm-hmm. I don't think people use CoffeeScript anymore, but at the time it, it felt like it was important. Yeah. And so it enables me to learn these programming languages because that's the, that's the best way to learn things, right? You learn by doing. So I think these projects have definitely always helped me get into that career of developer tools and uh, really empathize with developers and you know, learn more about how they work and yeah. what they would expect from like good documentation and things like that. Yeah. This is something that we've talked a lot about on the show is the importance for UX designers to be able to empathize and understand the work of their cross-functional peers, especially engineers and researchers. And I think that for a lot of folks that are in design and in UX, uh, because there's no real traditional path, especially into UX or product design, a lot of them are to some degree self-taught. And the experience and the familiarity that they've developed with engineering and with code is mostly through side projects, through things that they have taken on on their own. And that's what affords them the ability to speak on an intelligent level to these peers that they're collaborating with. What's interesting to me, though, is that I think that your comfort level and your proficiency with code is a little bit higher than the average product designer. I think it's fair to to call you a designer that codes. Yeah, sure. Uh, that, that goes back to my classic ASP and Microsoft Access CMS yeah. <laughs> back in the 90s. But something that this makes me think about that's really been on my mind a lot lately is that a lot of designers do launch side projects. A lot of designers play around with code, but very rarely do designers launch monetarily successful side projects. And even more rarely do they become entrepreneurs. You've done both, right? You've, you've launched side projects and you've worked in code entirely as a hobby, but you've also launched a startup. You've launched side projects that are monetarily successful. Why don't we see more designers doing that, taking the plunge into entrepreneurship? Yeah. yeah. I think there's a bit of a fear for like asking money for what you're doing. There's a lot of free stuff out there and a lot of good free stuff out there. So there's an expectation that things should be free. And I think there's always a fear of asking for money for something Mm because you think, okay, people are going to backlash and say, why, who's this guy? I think he is charging 50 bucks for um, a set of email templates. So there's a, there's definitely the, like, that side of things, like the, the fear. Mm-hmm. I started a company called Lookily, which was like Yelp in, in Ireland. And that was, uh, that was a while ago now. It's like 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. one of the things I learned from that, like I, I thought what I should be doing was creating a really good user experience and focus a lot on UX and development and didn't focus at all on customer development and really got to a point where that that website was doing really well from a consumer point of view, got lots of traffic. But when we tried to monetize it and make money, we didn't know who the customer was. We didn't know who was the persona that was going to pay for us. I, I definitely learned a lot from that experience where you know you need to really you need to try and find that like product market fit and define who who is the 
persona you're targeting, how much money do they have, what's their budget, what is the pain points that they're going through, and uh, you know, more focus on that side of things and not just creating something beautiful. Yeah. That's the trap that designers fall into, right? Is that what's always worked for them is to build the thing, to create the thing. And that that leads to the success. But when you're taking on entrepreneurship, there's much more to success than just making the thing. And yeah, I think that I think you're right on it there. Speaking of making the thing and scaling the thing and going from side projects to career, uh, something that you're doing now and that you've done for the last several jumps that you've made in your career is you're growing a startup and a design team. That's what you're doing right now at OneSignal. We're sitting in a mostly empty office right now, and it is huge. There's a bunch of open desks, and you you have a, a huge weight and responsibility on your shoulders right now to grow the design practice at this company. And so I'm curious about like what that's what that's like for you. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess some context. You know, one signal we're uh, a messaging and engagement company. So our, our our core product is push notification software. So if you're making a, an iPhone app, an Android app, or if you have a website and you want to engage with your users via push notifications, you can use us to send those notifications. And that that business now has been going really solid. We're growing a lot. So now we have this uh, nice big office, and you know, there's plan to grow more, obviously. And that's when yeah. we'll we'll fill up the office. And yeah, from a design point of view, I really love this role and you know this point in the company, like the stage. I like to wear a lot of hats, obviously, from the the side project discussion. And at this point, you get to wear a lot of hats. Like my role constantly switches from product UX design to some website development, to some front end stuff, to some marketing design, to some sales decks. And I, I do a lot of that. And you know, we, we get to a point where you know, there's so much of that you can do and then you have to figure out, okay, well, how can I scale what I'm doing? So that's where we are right now, starting to grow the team. So onesignal.com slash careers, if you're interested, you looking for a career jump. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's really an exciting time to be here right now. Like you can feel the energy in the air here. This is a thriving and growing company. And I think that's a great time to, to be, albeit all of the responsibility and challenges that it comes with to be getting involved with something like this. As I mentioned, we've previously discussed OneSignal on the podcast. And the the reason that I really started sort of tracking what OneSignal was doing for quite some time now was I was really impressed by your revenue model mm -hmm. at the time, which was freemium with a focus on data collection. You've since pivoted your revenue model from from being less focused on data collection in fact to now being like not collecting any data and being focused on paid plans how do you do that what was that process like how do you make the decision when you're scaling a company at the rate that you are right now to say hey this thing that's been working for us for the last several years we're going to do something completely different and that's going to involve changing our infrastructure changing our pricing model hiring people specifically because of that how do you do that yeah. So yeah, right. So we were we were selling anonymized data before. That was our, our revenue model. And historically, like I mentioned, we were uh, focused on developers. So, so app developers who typically don't have a huge budget, maybe no budget at all. So to cater to those needs, it was here's a free service, and you know we'll we'll make money off 
data that we collect, but you know, you can use it however you want to use it. Mm -hmm. And that I think like that that only really gets us so far. Like there's not that's you know, it's not gonna get huge. And I think there's some, you know, there's definitely always concerns around uh, the privacy issue and data collection. And, you know, the, the stuff we sold was, was anonymized data, but there's always, the question always comes up. And there's also so much more potential when you look at, okay, well, if we, we've seen a lot more SMBs and medium to large enterprise companies starting to sign up. Yeah. And they obviously had a lot of concerns about the, the data stuff. So we started, we introduced plans and we, we now still have a very generous free plan, but mm -hmm. there's a, once you hit a certain threshold, if you're sending to over 30,000 subscribers, or if you want some additional features, that's where you start paying for our, our starter plan, which yeah. starts at $99 a month. Mm -hmm. But that enables us to turn off that other side of the business. So the revenue model has completely shifted. Yeah. Most customers and most users aren't going to notice anything has changed um, except for the fact that there are plans on if you if you do grow enough to hit those thresholds and you, you you have to get into one of those plans yeah I think it's I, I've always really been intrigued by the way that you all have structured your freemium model and your pricing and I think that this is another interesting evolution of that and it makes total sense to me with it being more focused on enterprise customers but the fact that you can get this sounds like an advertisement at this point but it's i promise it's not the yeah, fact keep, that, keep going keep yeah. going i like it the, the fact that anybody can you know very quickly like set up notification push notifications on their site or in their app and not have to worry for like the first 10 20 30,000 subscribers i think is fantastic and it's another case where i was using one signal as a way to learn about web push notifications as something to potentially at the time introduce to hubspot right and now i've still got it running on my site and it's fantastic did yeah. you did you introduce it there uh, yes, we did. And the this brings us to like other issues that, that HubSpot was having with conflicting conversion mechanisms and stuff like that. What was interesting is that we found that the take rate on the notifications was really high. So it was successful in that respect, but of course it's then competing with like other channels that we had. So there, I remember there being some very interesting conversations there, but yeah, I, I think that the notification space is continuing to evolve. I'm very bullish on it so long as it is leveraged responsibly and thoughtfully. Really, actually, I think that's the, the, the next piece that I would love to discuss with you is using notifications as growth and retention channels and thinking about the, like, the best practices that you all would recommend to folks that might be saying, you know, like a HubSpot, for example, that's saying, okay, we've grown this incredible, huge email list. Now we're looking at potentially other channels that could be more short form, more direct than the inbox, like notifications. How do, how do we build our notification strategy? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, push is still a relatively new channel. So, you know, we're in somewhat uncharted territory. Like, was it 2010-ish when iOS introduced push and then 2012, 2013-ish when web introduced push and you could get it in the browser? So I think people are still trying to figure out how to utilize it. It's still like new to a lot of people. So a lot of people still, whenever I tell them, um, 
Uh, I'll also follow up. Well, you, you think about your email marketing strategy, and you, you're probably collecting emails, and then you send promotional emails, and you send transactional emails, and you're probably using a Mailgun or a SendGrid or a HubSpot. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the same thing for push. Like you have people that opt in, and then you can send them promotional push notifications, or you send them transactional notifications. Like for example, if you're using Uber or Lyft, and you you know, once you've uh, got a, r a ride and your driver's on the, on the way, you'll get a notification to say, hey, your driver's in the way. If you're, uh, if you sign up to uh, some e-commerce application and opt in for subscriptions, then you'll get promotional notifications around like Black Friday and so forth. So that's, that's really like the, the type of messaging that we're talking about. In terms of, yeah, how do you get, I think um, you need, timely and relevant notifications. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a sense of intrusiveness with notifications that because it's new and people are jumping on this new channel, I think uh, they're somewhat either uneducated or taking advantage of it. And a lot of the time can abuse um, the power that comes with push notifications. Sure. So I'm sure everyone's familiar with when you go to a website and the first thing you see when you go to the website is this uh, prompt top left that says subscribe to push and you can allow or block mm -hmm. and you know that's a very intrusive thing and then you associate that with with being spammed and you know that's because we need to do a better job of educating these users that are trying to get you to subscribe so the context of of where and when you opt in to a notification is very important mm -hmm. so browsing a website, maybe you've browsed for two or three pages and then after a couple of seconds and you get a prompt that says, hey, we can notify you when we've uh, posted new articles or posted new products for purchase. Mm -hmm. That's a bit more, you know, there's a bit more context around that instead of prompting the user as soon as they visited the site. Mm -hmm. um, same within an app, like if you're, if you install an app and you're asked for push notification access, you know, the first thing I always do is deny because I don't know if I'm going to use this app forever. I don't know what sort of messages are going to send me, mm -hmm. but maybe I'm trying to complete a task within that application. And let's say the task is, let's say I've completed it or it's going to take a while. And, and then I get a, a prompt that says, hey, we can let you know by a push notification when this task is complete. Then, oh, sure, that sounds, that sounds useful. I'll mm -hmm. opt into that. So it's all about the context and like when you present the users with this opt-in option. Yeah. And also after that, just don't abuse it. Don't send them 10 messages a day. Like make sure it's very, it's, it's timely, it's relevant. You know, if mm -hmm. it's, I think there's a couple of good news apps. When you download the app, the first thing they'll do is ask, how often do you want to be notified? Is it once a day? Is it multiple times a day? So it's, uh, you know, they cater to the user preferences. I do want to call out as, as a designer that's working on Chrome that the burden and the blame for bad actors that are pushing too many notifications or prompting users too many times is shared across multiple platforms, including the platform that enables all of this, which is the browser itself. Uh, and that's something that we've certainly been thinking about a lot in terms of like the, the prompting and the notifications themselves. And what we know for sure is that, as you mentioned, notifications that are timely, relevant, and precise can have a measurable impact on, on user engagement. They can, it can be an incredible, effective channel. And you can imagine that like very similar paradigms to email 
exist within app and web notifications. Uh, and I think that we're going to continue to see that evolve throughout the future when it, when it comes to like addressing spam and addressing bad actors and stuff like that and helping arm and empower users to engage with the brands and with the creators and with the websites or the apps that they want to while not being spammed and annoyed by others that are abusing the power that they've been granted. Interestingly, what we find is that notifications that are sent at the wrong time with the wrong content or with too high frequency are going to cause opt-out at the app level. Um, so there's a huge ecosystem effect to this. And what that means is uh, that if there's like one one website, this is really in the case of like, the if you think about a browser, there's like one website that's causing wreaking havoc and upsetting users, there's a very low likelihood that they will go into their notification settings and disable that one channel, that one website. Rather, instead, they will disable notifications wholesale. And what that means is that all of the other websites that they had opted into and that they said they wanted to get notifications from that weren't abusing them are also no longer going to have the ability to send notifications to them. So I think that this is something to be really thinking about at a macro level as well is like the impact that a bad actor has. Uh, it's not only an impact that will affect them, but it also affects others that are part of their ecosystem. Totally. Yeah. I, you're, you're in the, the browser business. I'm definitely curious to hear like what your thoughts are and you know, where it's going there. Like I know some things that, that we do or can do or have been doing, there's education, right? So it's you know, best practices and there's blog posts and so forth about that. Um, we're also building out you know, features to prevent our users from abusing the system as well. You know, like being able to make sure the prompts are delivered in a timely fashion or providing code samples that enable them to do that and like do some customization when they prompt. But yeah, what, what way do you think the browsers will go with that regard? I think... Browser roadmaps are very difficult to predict um, because they are gigantic open source products for the most part. So it's hard to tell, but I think we'll see similar paradigms to email being applied to app and web notifications. So if you think about like th this, this problem that we have with site notifications, really it's new in the context of like a notification coming from your browser, but it's not a new paradigm. If, if you look at like historically this problem of um, people getting too much junk mail, like like snail mail, or people getting spam phone calls, or people getting spam emails. Many of those problems have been solved in very similar ways, just leveraging the, the technology that is at their disposal to accomplish the same thing. So right now we're in this sort of like weird adolescent phase where it's possible for the system to be abused. I think that in the future, that's going to be increasingly more difficult to do. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Do you think it will go down the path of where, you, you know, for email, you've got a lot of different levels or layers there you've got well there's a can spam act so there's like certain rules around how you message these people and then there's also at a server or inbox level like whatever the big email clients are doing to identify like what is the spam message and what does it look like or also like gmail tabs where it's promotional tab social tab like do you think all those things will come to push at some point 
I think it's hard to predict, but I definitely think that from a digital well-being standpoint, it's a high priority for platforms. Whether you have like legal body intervention like the CAN-SPAM Act is, I think, to be determined. Um, certainly at the platform level, if you think about like the, the digital well-being efforts that Google and that Android are taking on right now, you can check out some great resources at wellbeing.google. That's a URL. I'll drop it in the description that talks about how we are approaching the way that we design for uh, greater digital well-being and considering the relationships that folks have with their devices and how we can help them to have the most healthy relationship possible. One such way that uh, this is happening in Android today, and this is already rolled out, is through uh, notification, truncation, and combination. So for example, with YouTube, if you are subscribed to a creator and you get like in a short period of time, four notifications from that creator or four notifications from say different creators, Android and, and YouTube can work together to combine all four of those notifications into a single master notification so that you only get buzzed once and then you can tap into that notification and go into YouTube and see the four different videos or whatever that are, are now in your subscription feed, right? I think that th there, that's a very smart way to approach this class of problem. And I want to see more of that rather than things that say, oh, we're just going to throw stuff in the in the, the proverbial spam inbox. I'm very intrigued by Android 10, um, where uh, you have like loud and silent notifications and the, the ability for a developer to say, hey, this is something that we want to notify the user about, but not have it buzz them versus this is actually of high importance and it should buzz them. I think that the platforms have the greatest opportunity to influence the direction of healthy notifications in the same way that they had the greatest opportunity to influence the direction of healthy email. Totally. Yeah, they definitely have you know a lot of control there. Well, Lee, this has been a great conversation. I've had a uh, a really fun time talking about side projects, managing and growing design teams, and taking a healthy and thoughtful approach to notifications. Uh, if folks that are listening to the show have questions for you or want to follow up with you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Sure. I am at Lee Monroe on Twitter. So it's M-U-N-R-O-E. And my website is leemonroe.com. Email is lee at leemonroe.com. And always happy to answer questions. It's been, a, it's been an honor. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this was great. Thanks.